name is Kieran. I'm going to be your host for this episode. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Jamie Hartford, CEO of Inverse Funding. Uh, Jamie is behind several businesses, not just Inverse Funding. And he started his first healthy fast food business back in 2012, which is right next to a Greg's. Since then, Jamie has worked in the automotive industry and has been working full-time in fundraising since 2018. Jamie, Jamie managed 20% of all crowdfunding raises funded in Europe in 2020 and has worked on over 100 successful pre-seeded raise. He's now CEO of Inverse Funding and Inverse have developed an amazing resource for high growth businesses. They've supported over 60 companies since 21, helping them produce high quality documents, implement strategies, finance system and data analytics to ensure that they are fit for funding. Jamie, you're really, really welcome. Uh, how are you doing today? Awesome. I'm awesome. I'm super happy to be here. I'm excited to get down and talk and I'm just really, you know, my ambition always is education and knowledge transfer. So I'm hope we've got two good minds here and whoever listening can take some value. Awesome. Um, well, yeah, so many different avenues to go down, uh, Jamie, but I, I suppose what I would love to do is start at the very beginning. So I mentioned there in the introduction, you first had your first foray into your own business in 2012. And I'm just curious to see kind of how you were kind of 2011 coming into 2012, what were you doing and why did you decide, I want to do something myself and, and what were those things that were going through your head to get you in that position? Great question. I mean, ultimately, um, business for me has always been a way to provide a life. I know there's a movement now of, you know, ideation and, you know, rapid startup, fail fast, um, but for me, the system and the mentality was always very different. So I very simply um, wanted to achieve a certain life. Um, and I knew that very, very young, um, sort of 2021, 20, I had exactly a roadmap in my own mind of what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. And the first step to all of that was doing it myself and starting and being accountable for my own future. Um, so that was what sort of led up to it. A lot of frustration. Um, I left school early, went to work in my dad's restaurant and just really realized that, that you know that, that's not the life that's going to save you forever um it was cool when i was super young because um you know my friends at school weren't earning any money and i had a couple hundred quid a week um from just working tables but yeah when i started getting to 18 19 20 i realized ah, i'm gonna have to look a little bit higher than this um and that's no disrespect to the family business you know we had two restaurants so we certainly weren't jeff bezos and co um but i learned a hell of a lot about operating um, and I learned a hell of a lot about how to manage teams, which ultimately is all a business is. It's how, how, how big is a team you're capable of running. Um, and yeah, that's what drove me to do it. So I just, you know, I took the, took the huge step of doing it and getting out and doing it. But the primary focus for me was always, I wanted to go on holiday to Morocco. I wanted to mm. eat in the nice restaurants. I wanted to be um, a, a, a big business figure. So kind of getting into that then, obviously, as you're saying, the motivations are, I want to kind of have a lifestyle that allows me to do certain things. So was one of the driving things like certain kind of models that you were building to test out different business ideas before going down the route, just to check, does this give me the margin I need to achieve my goals? And how, how are you working through that? Yeah. So if the focus is on you know, income and lifestyle, the way that you approach that's very differently. You want something that's 
easy to set up, has a very low barrier to entry, um, and has a huge upside. So the one of the actual one of the first businesses I did was when um, this was 2007, and a, I can show you a newspaper clipping at the time um, to prove it. And I did student recruitment, and the reason I did student recruitment was I could go around the local student halls, which is what I do with a flyer saying, hey, if you want a job, email me. Um, jobsforstudents.biz, what a great email it was. Um, and I would then go to all of the local bars and the local rugby club and say, hey, do you need glass collectors or anyone? And I did that because yeah. I could take 50p an hour off the people working. It was just a really mm -hmm. simple revenue model, zero barrier to entry. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I was looking for. Um, the next one I did was in students again, because you know, I'm from Newcastle. We've just got so many of them. <laughs> I went to the I went to the local estate agent and it's a guy well he's not an estate agent, it was it was owned by a company called Addison, a guy called Ian Baggett, who was just like a local um entrepreneur and genius to be honest. Um yeah. and I was like, I'll rent your student flats out for you and he was like, How? And I was like, I'll just <laughs> bring the students and I'd just again go knocking on the doors, get them to sign up, take them down and take my commission for renting the room. So, you know, my business focus has always been how quickly can we get to revenue? Um yeah. so we can have a nice life and everyone can get paid, um, versus um the capital expenditure to get there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, even our current business that we're working in now, inverse funding, which had incredible success, um Apart from salary sacrifices, we, we, it didn't cost us a penny. I still work on that um, men mentality of just, you know, getting easy and, and revenue is the primary focus. Yeah. And I suppose once you're kind of getting into those operational scenarios, whether it's um, renting students aid or getting students into the bars, at what point in time do you analyze to say, I want to scale this up? or it's gotten to a point where I've achieved what I've got to achieve here and it's giving me the, the value that I've wanted. Like, how do you come to those decisions? I, classic entrepreneur, um, classic entrepreneurs are always unsatisfied, still um, lying in bed on nighttime unsatisfied. And that's just a fact. Um, so the problem with the student businesses in particular was, well, I'm limited by geography and I can only walk so far around the halls and it's actually hard work. It sounds like a lot of fun, mm. um, but you know, you're doing six, seven hours a day, just walking around halls, dodging security guards, knocking on doors, saying, do you need somewhere <laughs> to live next year? You know, um, it's just not scalable. And as I said, you know, I, I do, I've always seen where I wanted to get to. Um, and that's been the hardest part is building a scalable business. So it's that classic entrepreneurial itch that just keeps me moving. Okay. Um, yeah. So that, that's how it is. It's more, it kind of get beyond this. Yeah. Yeah. And in those businesses where you have to, uh, scale or bring in other talent or put some capital expenditure, how did you identify if they were the right people or it was the right gamble to, to reinvest or put cash back in? Um, tricky one, tricky one. It's a bit easier with food because it's directly linked to output. So the more people mm -hmm. we could have in on a lunchtime, the more meals we could serve. Um, so we were quite, it's quite binary in that sense. I found that very easy. When you're going outside of that and you're talking about services businesses in particular, you just get frozen, you know, you just get frozen in that scenario because there isn't really a right answer. Um, mm -hmm. you've now got sort of a, uh, uh, 
diminishing rate of return. Anybody who I bring in is going to be half as talented as I am, and they're going to be twice the price. That's it. Margin's gone. So scaling issues early on, absolutely, they're just impossible. Um, mm-hmm. And I think ultimately the right answer is as soon the only times you can really scale safely is when you can really measure that ROI. It's just a case of, all right, I'm going to put a hundred pounds behind this. What What's that return going to be? I've got better as I've got older and understand. Um, but in the early days, it was completely crazy. Um, it was just winging it. And just digging into the food business for, for a second, uh, we've had a few people on the podcast that come from different food and beverage backgrounds. And one thing they always kind of struggled with was getting that first unit or first premises. Um, how did you find it in the your healthy food business? Was it a challenge? And if so, how did you kind of overcome it? Yep, great question. I... I had an unfair advantage. I think that's one thing that I do now. I work with founders. I look for their unfair advantage. You know, Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean a privilege. It's an advantage. So my unfair advantage was that at the age of 16, my dad didn't want to run the two restaurants anymore. Um, He was done running our two restaurants. He had done it for nearly 30 years. So at 16 years old, I was doing rent reviews and I was doing leases. So when when I was 21, ready to start my own, I walked into that meeting. Yeah. Um, I didn't pay a penny. I got a rent-free period and they contributed a little bit to my fit. So, you know, I think with anything, it's just how you deal with those situations. So I, I had an unfair advantage in that case. I suppose that's a really, really interesting point because obviously uh, unfair advantages can be the making or breaking of a startup when there's yeah. it's such a, such a small chance that you will succeed. How much, obviously you are able to analyze that now and look at, from an inverse funding perspective of the types of businesses that you're looking at. But did that impact any of the business decisions or businesses you went into post the healthy food um, restaurant chain? Did you then always think, what's my unfair advantage before getting into it? No, no. This is something that um, I've come back to now. I've got this knowledge base and understood Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, a lot of it's dissecting what's happened in the past and going, well, why did that actually happen? Because if you believe nothing happens by chance, it felt like chance at the time. I was like, yes. wow, that was a great deal. But, it, you know, it, it wasn't a great deal because of chance. It was a great deal because I knew what to say. I, I knew the piano song to play in front of that particular person. So mm-hmm. now nah, at the time, I had no idea. I was like, wow, this is all manifestation. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm so lucky. But no, when I look yeah. back on it critically now, everything i've ever done i've realized i can see very clearly why the outcome was one way or another yeah um and then i suppose curious as well to get your thoughts kind of looking back on on past businesses and current businesses um on the people side of things like how do you think critically about hiring and attributes for hiring and and do you think different differently given your experience yeah, so I've got I've got two two polar opposites to that. So, in my food businesses, food businesses, it was all about output. It was output focused. As I told you, it's just you know yeah. who who can clean dishes the fastest, who can mm-hmm. box me more burgers per hour, and I was judging people on that propensity a little yeah. bit of how you know could they smile and wink to the customers and the overall vibe of the place had the right energy, but it was mainly output focused. Yeah. Now. Fast forward a little bit to the business we've not spoken about, which is the VC-funded car business, which what started yeah. all of all of this off. 
So I went out of, I went out of food and I felt, okay, I'm a good operator. So let's, you know, let's keep operating. I'm good at operating. And I built the UK's largest warehouse. Um, again, got a rent free period. The landlord kitted it out for me. Um, so it was all good. Um, got the biggest warehouse in the UK for aftermarket car styling. And, you know, there's mm-hmm. articles again online. I can prove that statement. Um, I was built car designer to the stars. Um, yeah. And, I got VC funding for that business and that vis- that business collapsed after the VC funding, which explains why I do the job that I do now. Cause I'm like, okay, yeah. how many people can I stop that happening to? I put that collapse mainly down to two things. Um, yeah. one, the deal. I just did a bad deal. I didn't know okay. a good, I didn't know a good deal then. I'd never done a VC deal before. My family yeah. had never taken fundraising. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a few people who were advising at the time, but ultimately now I know they were getting paid off the VC as a scout so they were going to say the deal was good regardless um so i put that one down to hiring though so the vc part of the condition was that i brought into the business this sort of like time served specialist um and they were going to cost me about 70k um and they'd come from you know workshop background in big car companies um and now when I look back, I'm thinking, wow, I put my whole eggs in this one basket of just hiring this right person to run yeah. the warehouse and the workshop and make sure that we were slicked. And and ultimately now when I look back on that, I just think, wow, that was just not the right way to handle that situation at all. Yeah. Um, really, I should have... Um, because all it was was myself, my cousin, um, he was my best mate, um, and he came from the restaurant background as well. So he's just really good at running the kitchen, which turned out yeah. into um, uh, you're actually really good at running a tool shop because it's just yeah. tracking your tools and making sure that the stuff's there on time. Um, yeah. So we had a really good little operation going, but bringing someone else into that at that time um, was shouldn't have been the focus. You know, the focus mm. was growth. It was growth funding. It wasn't. It wasn't manage the operation funding and make sure that we're eking out our performance in every area. So I do yeah. attribute a lot of my failure to hiring um, yeah. and getting that right. Um, I'm blessed now with Inverse that we can um, hire a core team who are very talent specific. So I need mm-hmm. a graphic designer. We hire a graphic designer and we judge mm-hmm. that person again, like my food days based on their propensity to deliver the output that we need. So um, I think there is a, a bit in that where you start getting into senior hires that it gets really complex. Mm -hmm. And just, that's really, really interesting. And I suppose digging down into that kind of where it didn't go so well, obviously very specifically uh, focusing on that hire that was very on optimizing things. As you say, you wanted to go focus on growth and take the next level, but were there other aspects of the deal that you look back in hindsight in terms of the terms or how they went about it that you felt wasn't the best and you've learned from and you could help businesses with now going forward yeah so yeah this is what started all because i then yeah. had a post yeah. i had a post-mortem of this and since i've done four um four years this was 2018 i've done now four years of fundraising 100 as you said at the beginning so it did, did this absolutely spiraled all of this and the deal it was just the deal it was just so bad that um i've actually never seen it since it was a it was a fundraising deal tranched yeah. in 
worked with two tranches, so it was tranched. The second tranche was performance-based. Um, all of the deal costs came out of the first tranche, um, so the whole the whole lot, including the second. So I lost like 30% of my funding amount coming in. Um, it had debt repayment structure in there. This is off a big VC, by the way. This is off yeah. like a, you know, a top 10 VC. It had a debt repayment structure in there. It had monitoring and observation fees. So basically, by the time I'd paid for all of that, and then I'd then hired this warehouse guy that was recommended and I had to sort of have him signed in a contract before they transfer the money. Um, so that was a balance. That was a juggling act. Um, and we, and in the interim, it was taking so long. It took nine months. So we've got these people who were being told to hire and we're having to sort of finance it. And we're just getting ourselves in this just mess. Um, just waiting for the deal to drop. And you know, on the day that the deal drops, all founders have that same feeling. I had a, I had a, a, a client of ours recently just dropped 200k and they'd bought the champagne to open that night and the 200k came in and the invoice followed from the vc for 27k they put the champagne away you know it's it's a it's a bit of a if you've been through it you know that feeling um so yeah i felt that feeling on day one and i was like yeah i'm up against it here um so yeah i really do think the terms i could have been better advised and that's why you know that's why i'm here that's my whole purpose and my whole purpose is just knowledge transfer yeah and i suppose then kind of 2018 a bit more we touched on in the introduction is obviously you then had a huge amount of success in helping people in crowd raising during that, that period and when you kind of look at commonalities of course people that do well on crowd uh, funding platforms is they they can often be in the b2c space so you can involve a larger community but you tend to be a pretty strong marketeer in terms of how you talk to an audience how you brand and how you convince like what were some of the things that you learned and obviously some of the skills and knowledge transfer that you were giving to getting such success on crowdfunding platforms during that period yeah great question and i still love crowdfunding i've just moved away from it because crowdfunding's got harder and not yeah. not not raising money from your own community but just dealing with the platforms yeah. um they'll admit this themselves this isn't a news mm-hmm. flash to anybody who works with it it's just become difficult um, and yeah. they're losing so much money um well they were losing so much money before the acquisitions that the model was yeah. cocked so i w- i think i was kind of in crowdfunding in the golden times just before yes. it sort of got a bit sticky in the crowd in the in the um and what you could do back then is turn up without any lead committed capital so in 2018 19 ah, 20 that's- that's really, yeah. really important. I think just, just yeah. to even clarify for anyone listening, like it's nearly impossible to go into crowdfunding platforms without say 35% capital, I would say is probably Correct. the minimum that you would need. So that's a game changing moment where you're going yeah. on really from. Yeah. From zero. zero. Yeah. Yeah. So we, so back then, and, and to be fair to, you know, to be fair to Cedars individually, I still have this deal with Cedars. Um, because they respect yeah. they respect me and Inverse Funding, where they'll say if there is someone who comes and they've got zero, but you really think you can do it, we'll let you do it. So you know, I can't, yeah, I can't still do that. Um, I have to put my neck on the line a little bit, and they get a bit, <laughs> you know, they get a bit upset. But we we can do it. But ultimately, what that allowed us to do was start at the very beginning of a fundraising yes. round and actually yes. go, okay, what is the plan here? What's the target? And that's where I kind of learn more about the overall holistic cycle of a fund 
fundraising round. Um, I'm then seeing multiple rounds. I'm then seeing the same business transition and transform. So I've just got a beautiful oversight. But what makes crowdfunding specifically relevant is exactly what you said. It's a, I, I see fundraising as a communication challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got to communicate effectively to you why I want something from you, whether it's time or, or money. Um, and you've got to understand it. And what crowdfunding forces you to do through no objection is on Crowdcube, you get 1,400 characters, including spaces and punctuation to define mm-hmm. the idea. Um, C does a slightly longer, but Crowdcube is 1,400 characters. People generally can't write in 1,400 characters. You know, they just waffle and waffle. So what it's I learned- ten, like 10 yeah. original tweets, basically. Yeah, it's 10 tweets. And to, 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 to summarize your whole business idea. So yeah. that's what I really love about crowdfunding. I think that's something that if you can get good at, which is being able to really summarize your business, make it exciting, punchy, um, opportunistic, that, that, that's how you get good at crowdfunding. So that's kind of what we've now taken forward into our methodology where we kind of do crowdfunding without the platform basically and just manage it as a, as a, as a resource for a company. We, we carry mm-hmm. that same ethos over. Let's condense it down, make it simple, make it so. And the other thing with crowdfunding is don't forget the investors are, are retail investors, which just means everyday folk like, yeah. um, like the population. So you have to kind of, explain things simply you can't just use jargon and you can't just rely on assumptions that you may have if Mm -hmm. i said to you kieran i'm going to pitch you a um a a fashion marketplace instantly because you've got so much knowledge you kind of could already imagine the revenue lines you could probably imagine the business itself um, and just through your through your knowledge however when we're pitching crowdfunding we have to assume that you know nothing so we have to work out within that 1400 characters how much is education how much is you know excitement and so forth so it's a great process i love it yeah actually i'm just kind of reflecting like it's an unbelievable challenge because it's so different to pitching to a VC where you're just like, I've got like a 30 second window for them to pick out maybe one or two points in this pitch deck that has 15 pages for them to go, yes, I'll maybe send an email back. Or whereas, as you're saying, if I'm pitching to a retail investor, I really need to like talk through some really key points that the messages land and it's, it's the education piece. Um, and, yeah, well, if, we're, if we're looking at Swoop, for example, if we're building a, a fundraising campaign for Swoop um, in an angel investor environment or a VC funding environment, the fundraising round that we're going to build is more about efficiency, is more about transactional mm. data metrics. However, for the crowd, we'd have to talk about the funding gap. We'd have to talk about the inequalities and how technology can balance it. So although I'm sure you had those narratives in the, the decks that you've, that you've used to raise, crowdfunding yeah. would have to be super heavy on that sort of emotive mm. narrative. So it would be definitely a different story. Uh, and then curiously, I'm, I'm, I'm quite keen to kind of pick your brain on, obviously, as you kind of alluded to, you're moving away from necessarily focusing on kind of crowdfunding campaigns through, through crowdfunding platforms, whether they might be CJ's Crowdcube. And um, because you alluded to one of the, the big uh, pain points or barriers is I need to bring a substantial amount of capital uh, to the table. Um, are there other trends that you've kind of seen over the last couple of years that have also turned you away from solely focusing on that area and looking at other elements 
I think that what crowdfunding used to be was an end-to-end service where you could sort of take someone through a process and it was very very formulated, very easy. If we do these actions, we'll get these outputs. What, what, what's kind of unfolded is that it's not as simple as that anymore. So you mm. can't sort of guarantee a formula. So for us to be effective as professionals, we need to be able to guarantee a yeah. formula that works every time. And that's obviously yeah. something similar to what, what you're going after. So the, the, the other sort of macro trend that moved us away from crowdfunding in particular was just the maturity of the businesses that are coming on there now. Um, we're now seeing sort of Series C, Series D raises um, on crowdfunding platforms, yeah. which for me has just killed the whole vibe. Um, so that that is kind of like a, a buzzkill. I just don't like it. I'm, I, I Inverse could make five times more money. We could have five times more amount raised if we did the bigger deals, but ultimately that's helping. That's not helping the startups. And I, I didn't like that, that move. Um, and I thought, okay, well, let's try and put the power back in the entrepreneur's hands. Let's give, let's try and build them the tools where they can do this. Um, there was a time period where crowdfunding was a real, you know, it was a great fundraising option. You could go and get yeah. a lot of cash, but as you quite rightly pointed out, you know, it's like 50% to get through the through the engagement letter mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. with them now. And then it's sort of 70% to launch publicly. Um, yeah. And ultimately anybody looking at that from the outside is just like, unless you're really going for that marketing value and community value, it, it's tricky. It's a tricky one to sell. Yeah. So yeah, yeah I, I, th- I think they've done it to themselves intentionally. Yeah, but I suppose as you alluded to, like I mean, their commercial model was pretty fact um, on how it was done originally. They were they needed to find ways to to make it more um, well sustainable. I, I think the biggest um, the biggest rival to the crowdfunding platforms isn't another crowdfunding platform. It's Seed Legals. Um, Seed Legals have slowly blurred the line between mm. crowdfunding and reality, and they're going to yeah. keep going. They're going to keep going. They've now got their pitch pages. They've even got an article online that says that you don't need any FCA approval to share this pitch page. Um, so they're sort of promoting people that they've obviously got all of the filings in place. The only thing that's necessarily missing is that nominee, which you can plug in from Valbound or Odin. So I see community raises changing anyway away mm-hmm. from the crowdfunding mm-hmm. model yeah um one area i'm really keen to kind of pick your brains on and it's kind of really the genesis for a lot of businesses that you'll come across um which is are you right for funding particularly are you right for equity-based funding and it can be a challenging conversation to have with businesses because sometimes entrepreneurs are entrepreneurs are very passionate or people who have ideas tend to be very passionate um but how do you have that those kind of conversations where you're analyzing and having a conversation whether they are or are not a good fit and, and explaining that back yeah i mean massive it's it's a massive thing and it's something that you have to have a lot of responsibility over ultimately when you're in a mm. position where you know i've got the trust i've got the reputation it's not very difficult for us to sell our services um because they're good and we've got a spreadsheet of people that have had success and will vouch for us and so yeah i often joke that our website should be is any good.com um <laughs> because that's kind of the core essence people sit in front of us and they're like they just throw the information at you and they're like what do you think um 
the ego in me, um, which, you know, gets better over time as I mature and see more things and more people. Um, when I was young, 21, it was a nightmare. Of course it was my ego, but I've, I've learned that. But now the ego in me would always have said in the past, you can fundraise for anything. You know, it's all just about getting it right. And any entrepreneurs equal value, all ideas are equal value. However, that, I've been proved to be wrong on that multiple times. And we had a situation recently um, where we started work with someone, took their money off them to build a pitch deck. It was actually a, it was actually an introduction from Swoop. Um, and we ended up having to re refund um, yeah. the client. I just couldn't build it. Um, I just couldn't yeah. build it. Um, I just couldn't. There's a line where it's like, I can make you a pretty brochure, but it's not yeah. going to get you investment. And where do you draw that? Where do you draw that line is really mm. difficult. And, and often mm. you don't actually know until you get into the weeds, because as you said, entrepreneurs are very convincing. Um, yeah. And if they see that problem solution fit, you can be sitting there as someone who's, and you're like, all right, okay, I can see that too. But in this case, it just fell apart, the go-to-market strategy. Um, yeah. There was nothing there that showed, okay, you're going to, you know, all businesses or you've got this and you need to sell this. That that whole middle bit was just missing. So um, we learn from everything. And now, you know, I'm always attacking that now when people are sort of, when I'm, you know, saying I can do some someone's work for them, I'm just making sure that every point of this, the, the process, we've got those answers. But yeah, it's practically impossible yeah. on, a, on a first call to spot because all that comes through is the enthusiasm, the excitement. Um, it does take a little bit to get into the weeds and, and realize, but yeah, all you can do is be honest. All you can do is be honest. Um, one thing I suppose that, that has been good from say the original ideology around crowdfunding and also as investing as a retailer, whether it's through SEIS or EIS in the UK, it has kind of probably opened things up to make it more uh, of a democracy to get people to see the opportunity. But have you, have you noticed that trend to see that? businesses are coming from the not the usual so everything's not coming out of london or or in, in yeah. certain sectors have you have you seen kind of positive trends in in that area yes um however the crowdfunding selection criteria does negative bias on these type of individuals so whilst there are more definitely creative type businesses on there so they're not just clinical fintechs etc um the the platforms the way that they select businesses to go there it do, it does create that that bias so i think ultimately um even on crowdfunding campaigns they've still got a heavy bias towards london they've still got a mm. heavy bias towards male founders um their investors are heavily male platform investors are heavily male i think we've had one campaign in history that's had more female than male investors um no i i think i think so um Which, I think you, so. can you remember what the campaign was I think I think I'm going to say Mama Made or some or, or Flex or yeah. Careers maybe some one of those two because they're both awesome businesses. But what one of them had that, um, and that was the first time ever because they promoted that pretty heavily. Um, yeah. But yeah, the, the ultimately anywhere where you have resource as a barrier and resources a propensity to raise funding as a network um you're obviously going to see a you know a, a, a system in place that privileges one type of person over another and i still see it now um mm. you know we're doing we're doing fundraising outreach at the moment um for a client they're from eastern europe and um as soon as we swap the name over to their co-founder who is english you know we get more replies um so 
you know, there was someone yeah. recently said that I saw on LinkedIn that said they swapped from a female co-founder outreach to the male one and the male one got 84% more responses. So That's fundraising's crazy. yeah, fundraising's incredibly biased. However, that being said, to balance it out a little bit, um, we've done some amazing raises for for ethnic minority backgrounds, for, for women, for LGBTQ, everything on the yeah, crowdfunding yeah. platform. So once you can get past those um, first initial barriers, um, absolutely, it's a great place and it's a great incubator for, because the communities are great. You know, that's the other, yeah. that's the other thing with crowdfunding that I've kind of got this love, this bitter taste in my mouth. So I do love the crowdfunding community. I love mm -hmm, the investors mm -hmm. on there. They're ruthless. Um, oh my God, like the comments on some of that. Unbelievable. <laughs> Jesus. Unbelievable. <laughs> Prepare for some G intense due diligence coming at you. Oh, like it's like it's unbelievable. Reddit it's boards times 90. Oh, it's unbelievable. It's literally unbelievable. But I love that. And it's, you know, I come again, I do, I do link everything I do to the past and I can see it. Sometimes stuff unfolds in front of me and, and I'll never forget working in restaurants and anyone who's worked in retail knows this feeling of just someone standing, shouting in your face, <laughs> just being horrible, just shouting, oh, you know, want money back or whatever. And you're just like, it's a plate of food, you know, chill. Yeah, so. Yeah when I'm doing crowdfunding and I'm prepping them um, prepping our clients, I'm saying, right, look, it's going to get spicy on here. You know, let's just instantly take it down. Let's, you know, see yeah. this with a smile. I just link it all back to my, my food days. So, mm. you know, getting the one star trip advisor review and having to calm oh. the whole, having to calm yeah. the whole team down and be like, no, come on, let's just send a nice reply. So I, I, I do see huge parallels between, between the two. Yeah. Um, one area I was kind of curious to dig into as well is you kind of touched on there, like where the, the, the customer wasn't my fit, because as you went through the scenarios of analyzing the business, you were like really struggling with the go-to-market strategy element of it. But are there areas that you find time and time again, you guys really add value in terms of building that narrative for businesses, right? Is, is there like common areas, whether it's like talking through the target marketing or where the go-to-market strategy that time and time again, if you can get that right, it really helps with that kind of pitch into investors. Yeah, ultimately for us, um, my biggest weakness and the bit that let me down my whole business career was numbers. Um, it was just numbers. I didn't get a maths GCSE, so I was like disadvantaged in that sense. Um, you know, I failed it three times. I, they, I even sat it in the same room as my brother and I copied my brother and he passed and I failed. <laughs> That's a true story. So I just, <laughs> literally we sat in an empty hall and did a maths GCSE together because he, he'd failed the year before and he's that bad at maths. So I always missed this, um, this just, this financial element. So when I ended up partnering in Inverse with my co-founder, Ivan, who was just a, you know, mathematical genius, just mm. understands finance, understands that. Um, that really for us was the core focus of our product. You know, everything mm -hmm. here has to be grounded in mathematics and not just we understand it, that you, the founder, understand it. So it always is uncomfortable the first time you ask someone to pull out the finance model. It's because they're yeah. shy and they're nervous and they know it's no yeah. good. Um, but then we look into what's really important and it boils down to a couple of key things, which is metric tracking. Um, yeah anybody who's evaluating an investment criteria and i'm sure the technology that you're 
spending your incredible funding round on is building technology that's just trying to yeah. benchmark people against each other in a fair yeah. way. Um, so ultimately, that's the manual process any investor's going through that is trying to benchmark you against something else they may know and decide, is this good or not? And we think the best way to do that's with math. So we focus on the LTV to CAC ratio. Nice. Classic, is it over 2.5? If so, yeah. great, you've got a sustainable business according, yeah. to, according yeah. to people who want to invest. So, yeah, we, we want to focus on that stuff. The narrative's easy. Again, as I told you, I find it easy to take a business and look at, you know, mm -hmm. the problem solution fit. But ultimately, the investment's won or lost in in the metrics um, yeah. and yeah. owning those metrics. And so, yeah, that, that's what we try and focus on. And then I suppose kind of final question for me, uh, since your time in university, Funny, you, you're already alluding to adapting in a changing market in terms of you initially were dealing with the platforms you're changing now. You can see C-Legals becoming a different form of community. What are you seeing in the next 12, 24 months that you're going to be adapting to how people are raising funding or the type of customers you're expecting to see over the next couple of years? Yeah, that's a great question. And ultimately, um, we're kind of in the middle of like this elastic band moment um, where we've gone full remote and fundraising went fully digital to now snapping mm. back to this weird hybrid um, where some people want to meet in person and some people don't. Some people are happy behind Zoom. Some people are itching to get out. So our biggest challenge at the moment is still balancing that that digital versus um, real life. So one of my clients, Rima, um, she's got a company called Tessel. She basically um, went to a PwC raise event. She then came back. We coached her. We wrote a little article together um, on the event and took a mm. picture. I then tagged a couple of people in the post underneath it from PwC in that ecosystem. She ended up getting a, an angel offer off the back of that. So then... A year ago, that would never would have been the strategy, you know. So, yeah. you know, we've got to find a way. And our biggest challenge now is finding that way to have that personal touch without um, damaging what is so great about the pandemic, which is yeah. that now I can apply to any VC, any angel investor anywhere in the world and have a Zoom call with them that same day. And um, mm -hmm. we don't want to lose that because that's been very powerful for businesses. Um, and... Yeah, so that's our biggest challenge, I think, is just that balancing this digital landscape as we either come out of it or, or I, don't, I don't know where it's going yet, and I find it hard to predict. Nice. Well, I think it's, it's fair to say, having listened to you for the last while, that you've got such a good mindset on reflecting and an apathy to adapt and, and change, which I think is an awesome mentality. Um, but yeah, I just want to say an absolutely huge thanks from our side that was just uh, pleasure just chatting to you there uh, for the last 40 minutes or so so I uh, really really appreciate you coming on and chatting uh, Jamie and I'm sure uh, there's a huge amount any startup or entrepreneur will get out of that conversation so thank you very much again nah, thanks to you I appreciate any type of platform to, to say what I want to say so yeah thanks for that <laughs>